Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Young Adults Podcast by Grace Church. Uh, tonight, it's just me and Ken. Uh, no special guests, but we thought we'd press record and see what happens. Tonight, we're talking about how to read the Bible for yourself. Now, I think the first thing you might be wondering as we introduce that topic is, hey, isn't that something that we already talked about from last week? Uh, so just to set the scene, last week was really valuable being able to sit down with Charlie and Justine and to get um, two new perspectives on people that historically have not been always in a teaching ministry, but we wanted to use their story to really help and encourage everyone to, to understand that you don't really need to have all of the answers before you can place yourself you know, in a position to be learning, and but also to be teaching the text. But I think tonight is a little bit more, fo- and don't want to sound very self-obsessed, but tonight is really a bit more of a focus on yourself. Um, not so much on the teaching of others bit, um, but really about how to read the Bible for myself. Because a lot of the times we might open the Bible, and that for some is a lot of effort to get to that stage already. But are we doing it right? Are we doing it justice? Um, how do we ensure that we can be consistent? Ken, what are your thoughts as we open up on this topic? I get the feeling for a lot of people when we approach the Bible, and I've done this before, it's like you pick a passage and you read it for two minutes and then you close it and you go, well, I've read the passage. And if you try extra hard, then you'll start thinking about, oh, well, you know, maybe Jesus was quite a good person in this passage. Now let's also be a good person. Mm. But I think there's more to reading the Bible than that. And the Bible is a book, but it's not quite your average book either. Uh, I always think of the common example of someone saying how not to read the Bible, and it's the example where someone kind of randomly flips open and he points to the passage, and you know it's the one that says Judas went and hung himself, himself. and then they flip again, and then they go to another passage and they point, and Jesus says go and do the same. Uh, and I know most of us don't approach the Bible that way, but we actually kind of take it as, well, if I pick a book in the Bible, I can just read it and it should be fine. But the Bible was written ages ago, like really long ago. And there's objective truth to be found in every text before taking into account what it means for yourself. Because right now, really, even in today's day, like if you talk in the lingo of a millennial versus a Gen Z, mm. Uh, there's different words, you know, yeet and memes and other Wait, things. Wait, sorry, that go on. what is yeet? To be honest, I still don't know. There's a, there's a video on YouTube I've seen a guy try to explain it, but it seems to be just a universal word of celebration. Yeet, like Y E E T. Yeah, Y E E T. All right, we'll Not use to it be next time. Yeet, yeet, hey. Yeet, hey. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so we have different interpretations, but back then when the Bible's written, we suspect then, well, they had their interpretation when they first wrote it. Um, I don't know, Marcus, can you kind of think of what, what might be a word that we use that's probably quite different? In today's context, that's quite different to in the past. Mm. Um, yeah, I reckon we take for granted that everyone knows what it means when, when I say, hey, yeah, I'm going to tweet this. But just even 15 years ago, if I said I'm going to tweet this, people would think I have a bird that speaks on my behalf. But today, we all know it just means I'm just going to use Twitter on social media. So that's an example of something that might have a different interpretation today versus a while ago. Yeah, I suspect as well of 
I don't know, I hate that this is the example now in my head that if someone was in 1945 and they read the term slide into the DMs uh, that might mean something they will think DMs is a location or <laughs> slide is literally sliding <coughs> or slide tackle the defensive midfielder yeah yeah Fairfield <laughs> might be there but yes neither of us know what it really means <laughs> in today's context <laughs> I think we've, we need a bit of generational diversity in our, in our <laughs> conversation. So those are some really good examples of the different interpretations of things um, that don't necessarily uh, reflect the objective truth um, by the author or by the speaker. And I think that, like you said, that is such an important starting principle. There is objective truth to be found in every text before we take into account what it means for ourself. Um, one of the things that I've been learning with uh, a group of young adult leaders is meaning um, is what the author intended to communicate by his or her words. And it can't just be what I think the meaning is. Um, so yeah, absolutely agree with objective truth. Now for today's episode, we have decided to pick uh, an example, a small passage in the book of Matthew. And we thought we'd use that as an example to flesh out what, what might be some of the questions and challenges as we're reading through it. So I've asked Ken and myself to put ourselves in the shoes of, you know, we're at home, um, Bible apps open or on the train and we're reading it. What are the things to be looking out for? What are the things to avoid? And we'll just basically just talk about it and see if there's things that we can help to get across or even maybe new insights that we might have had that the other person hasn't had and i think that's one of the benefits of being able to talk about scripture with other people um, that's a really healthy culture yeah so maybe how about for the listeners to follow along i'll just read it and it's coming from matthew 15 29 to 39 uh, and we've we've chosen this quite specifically this wasn't the uh, flip flip the book and point approach we thought it'd be easier to start with the gospels first uh, so Matthew fifteen twenty nine it reads, Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 men besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan.
All right. So now that we've read the passage, Ken, honestly, a lot of people might say, well, that's awesome. Close the Bible and that's it. But I think we can do the text a little bit more justice than just reading it. Uh, I want to use the model that our wise sage friend Charlie shared with us uh, in the previous episode. And that's the coma model. Or his rendition is the P-coma model, um, where you pray, then you get the context of the passage, observe or find the observations about the scripture, then draw meaning, and then we make an application to ourselves. So I want to start. Well, let's let's assume we've prayed. Oh, oh yeah, we we might uh, pause to to have a sidebar of prayer. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll record <laughs> on from there. So after the prayer, um, what using this Matthew example? What's an example of a way to process through the context of the text? Right. So I think there's quite a few key aspects that we need to know from the context, but there's good news. And there's bad news. Bad news is that it takes a lot of work to understand context. You might have to even read all of Matthew. The good news is you can find it all in Matthew. In the sense of you don't need to be a history teacher. You don't need to be a Bible scholar. A lot of the context you can read is within the Bible itself. Uh, so, so just firstly, quite simple, context of the book itself. Well, Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Uh, it starts with a genealogy. So we can suspect that Matthew's targeting Jewish history, uh, especially the Old Testament, since he mentions the Old Testament a lot. Hmm. Uh, he doesn't really explain any Jewish culture ever. So he kind of assumes that the readers are Jewish too. Uh, the book is likely to be chronological. If you kind of notice the story, it's always after, or oh, then Jesus went, or from there Jesus did this, or just then. So it, it sounds like a very pretty simple straight timeline. Uh, what else do I know about the book? The book's written in hindsight, uh, in consultation of gospel witnesses, and, and we can tell this is the case because Matthew himself is only found to follow in Jesus in chapter 9, uh, where Jesus calls him to follow. And most of the writings for the gospel didn't come into population after the apostles actually started dying, where they realized, well, we actually need to write this down. Uh, and thankfully, Matthew as a tax collector could write. Uh, and, and him as a tax collector also experiences a lot of persecution from the Jews. Jews hated tax collectors, so he kind of had a message for them in mind. Uh, what else? The book is split into 28 chapters. Uh, but it's important to know that there weren't any chapters when it was written or any subtitles. So we've got to read it as one story and we can look left or right to understand, well, maybe this is why Matthew is using it. Uh, we know that, as well, Matthew, as a tax collector, is often pushed by the Pharisees, so he's probably not a big fan. Uh, the last one, and also really important, is because this is who we need to assume to be is, well, this is written to Jews. And so, in order to understand this truthfully, we need to try to think as a Jewish person thinks. Now, I don't mean today's Jews, and I don't mean think about Amish people or anything like that, but actually think about the old days, and while the Jews hold the Old Testament super closely to their heart, they esteem and hold very highly the leaders of the time, which is the Council of the Sanhedrin, or otherwise known as Pharisees and Sadducees. 
uh, they're very used to following traditions uh, by the people or the high priest. Most importantly, they hold their race super sacred, like one nation, make America great again type sacred. They're ultra xenophobic. And I'm saying these very expressive words uh, because they're truly quite racist. They hate the Romans. They hate Samaritans. And if you do anything against the Jews, like the tax collectors, they'll hate you too. Uh, they reckon that obedience curries God's favor, which is enrich, to be rich, fertile, and healthy. And therefore, the opposite is probably true. That if you're poor, barren, or sick, you've done something wrong. Uh, I think that's about a good enough list of context. So maybe, Marcus, what are some of the observations then you, you, can, you can look at? Mm. So when you start talking about context, I start thinking about Lord of the Rings and how if you jump straight into Two Towers, sometimes as a movie on its own, sure, you, 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 know, you might have a, a good watch, but it's really when you get the context of why they're there, how they got there, where they're headed, um, why Gimli is, hates elves, you know, like everything becomes so much richer. So, sorry? I said Gimli's Jewish. Gimli the Jewish dwarf. When it comes to observations, um, I'm just going to take you through what I observed or maybe what I wrote down or underlined through the text. So I'm really only focusing on the 10 verses that, we're, that we've been reading. Um, so one of the observations is it gives location. It gives us um, from the very first verse, Jesus goes along the Sea of Galilee up on a mountainside. I've also observed that in this specific encounter, it's Jesus, the disciples, and a great crowd. And that is something to contrast with even maybe passage before where Jesus is speaking one-on-one with a woman. Uh, maybe further on, Jesus is speaking with a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, but it'd be a smaller group than the crowd that we see here. Um, I observe that the crowd is a crowd of uh, 4,000 men. And importantly, it only records the men. So likely to have been way more than 4,000 people. Um, there is a whole bunch of people that need healing. There's the blind, crippled, mute, uh, and sick people are laid at Jesus' feet. And what does Jesus do? He is healing these people. But it doesn't just end there. That healing causes amazement from a significantly non-Jewish crowd. And what's the response from the crowd? Uh, at verse 31, this crowd begins to be people that are praising the God of Israel. And that's insane to go from uh, a Gentile crowd having an experience with what they would have thought was a Jewish rabbi, and now they are praising the God of Israel. Then the passage moves into a, a very brief conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, where he begins to reveal um, not just his ability through the healings, but he begins to reveal his heart. He tells them that he has compassion for this great crowd because they are people that have been with him, following him around for three days, and they have had nothing to eat. And as an Asian, this is Jesus at his most paise um, state. He doesn't want to send them away hungry because they might collapse on the way. And I really identify with that, just that very notion of like, you don't want people to suffer, right? And Christ really models and exemplifies that through the compassion that he shows for the crowd. 
then we have this back and forth with um, the disciples and it, it sort of shows their, the question shows the lack of faith that they might have had in Jesus. And that has a little bit of a glimpse about prior context, perhaps. But objectively, right there, they're, they're asking him, well, where are we going to get enough bread to feed people? Uh, and then Jesus does this thing where he, he asks them how much they're resourced with. Uh, and then he feeds a crowd with seven loaves of bread uh, and a few small fish. Uh, another thing that Christ does here is that he gives thanks, which is something that he's modeled prior, but he gives thanks before he passes the bread or breaks the bread and passes the food to the disciples. And then what do we see? We see people eat and they were satisfied. And I really wanted to circle that word satisfied because um, that had an implication then. But I think later on, perhaps in, when we talk about meaning, that, that concept of being satisfied by Christ uh, might have a broader context for, for us as well. Uh, and then we see that there are leftovers. So Christ provides in abundance. Um, and finally, we get the number of the people that he fed. And there was 4,000 men besides the women and the children. And after Jesus sends the crowd away, finally, we, we sort of see this, this narrative have a brief conclusion before the next encounter. Cool. Uh, and so now I get to put my context hat on or my Jewish hat on. I don't mean a literal kippah. I mean, like, <laughs> if I pretend to be a Jewish person and also my context of Matthew. And, and I'll turn Marcus's observations into meaning like a chemist, almost, <laughs> if you will. Uh, just a chapter before this, we see Jesus feeds... 5,000 but it's a different group they're vastly Jewish and there's a different amount of fish there's a different amount of bread uh, and I realised well actually then there's got to be a reason that the two are kept so close together uh, in between Jesus uh, is also mentioning in two stories Matthew sorry mentions two stories uh, one where the Pharisees are unbelieving and are blind guides and the faith of a surprising Gentile woman who actually understands Jesus despite the disciples often not understanding what Jesus means. And then we have a, a 4,000 passage here. And I suspect then that Matthew is wanting us not just to read this passage on its own, but in contrast with the 5,000. Well, the 5,000 don't praise the God of Israel, but he specifies that these Gentiles do. And yeah, that's why he has to specify that it's the God of Israel, because it's not just any other God. And if I'm a Jewish person hearing this, well, that's quite shocking, because I didn't expect the Gentiles to be able to know who God is. Uh, I didn't expect that Jesus would have compassion for them either. I don't mm. quite like Gentile people. In fact, Jesus mentions the term dogs, which is the use just before this, which is a derogatory way back then to describe Gentile people. Uh, I'm noticing that this time round they have even more food than they did the last time, and yet the disciples, having just seen a miracle like this, are still confused as to whether Jesus can feed them. Uh, and I'm seeing, putting it together, as both of them always have leftovers, because I think... To me, that kind of says, well, Jesus' grace and his goodness is good enough not just to save the Jews or the Gentiles, but 
probably enough for both. Uh, and in light of the final verse of Matthew, of the Great Commission, then it's to no surprise that we should be sharing the gospel to all nations because Jesus hasn't just come for one set of people. Uh, taking Marcus's observation of you know the compassion and the satisfaction, we see that, well, truly Jesus actually meets their needs, not just in a food way, but in their ability to know God and praise Him. Uh, and following this, this chapter, Jesus mentions these stories. He says in Matthew 16, You of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? Think of the 5,000, think of the 4,000. The most important thing is to be on the guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So I, I think this story has, has much to say as to, well, we better be careful as to who we think can be saved. And we better be careful that we don't act self-righteous. Because this shows that the Gentiles are responding better to Jesus than the Jews were. And so that's why I think the context hat is important because the observations in themselves can tell us a lot about what Jesus is like. But the context shows us that Matthew wants us to see more about how Jesus approaches sharing the good news and approaches loving people rather than just focusing on the small story. Uh, but Bob, okay, now that we've got this kind of meeting, Marcus, what do you, what do you see then? How, how do I translate it into something that's maybe a little bit more for me because I'm not Jewish? Hmm. <clears throat> and I think this is where the challenge is pretty high because up to this point, a lot of it can be learned. Um, when it comes to drawing out an application, I think a lot of the times one of the traps that we make when we read the Bible is we want it really... We want an application that we can just do straight away. So the minute I get off the train and I've closed my Bible app, I want to be able to do this thing. Um, but I think we need to view application in a different way. The The underlying key question for application is really, how should this change me? Um, and it might change the way that I behave. It might be an actual thing that I need to start doing differently, something I might need to be st- stop doing. Um, it might be a, a different way that I've, I need to think about God. Maybe the text reveals something about God that I have not brought to the forefront of my mind that the text says is really important that I understand about God. Um, for, for something like this, it would be, well, how often do I associate compassion with my understanding of who God is? And the next question is, then, well, then if I can do that, that's awesome. But secondly, how can I then be a vessel of that compassion that God has um, to be lived out through myself? I guess in everyday speak is, well, how can I be someone that is Jesus's representation of his love to people? But to really hone in on the praising the God of Israel point is really, well, if I look at the circles of influence that I'm in, who have I said are, uh, oh yeah, potential people that you know I could preach the gospel to? I might be bold enough to share my faith with this person because you know they've shown signs of being curious. Um, they've asked me uh, certain questions about religion or the afterlife. But there are some other people who I've, in a sense, whether I want to say it or not, I've just written off. I've completely said, well, that's a no-go zone. I can't even imagine those people ever becoming a Christian. 
I think a text like this should really confront me to say, well, those names need to move into the other side of the list to say that God has compassion for those people and that the, the kingdom of heaven is available to anyone that will repent. So I cannot be the one to write people off because um, that's me trying to play uh, God. Uh, another way that I can apply this text is really to learn to not emulate the disciples and to look at previous glimpses of God's faithfulness in my life, like much like they may have seen with uh, the crowd of the 5,000. If we're just talking bread-related miracles, even then we have a previous example that they can rely on. I'm sure I can recall many a time where God has shown his faithfulness but just like the disciples in today's situation, I'm still showing a lack of faith in God. This text forces me to really throw my trust back in God's court and to really rely on him to be the one to to work through my lack. Um, and, I, and I think like sometimes we're so quick to go, oh man, these guys, how did they end up doing this? Like the disciples, they must be just stupid. And then we realize, oh, actually, that might just be me, isn't it? Like, I could know the goodness of Jesus. I could know the level of his power. And yet when I see this small obstacle in front of me, I have little faith. Mm. And I can just put myself right there, right in their shoes. Yeah. And I think for me, <clears throat> the final thing I want to talk about for application is something that I'm, I'm wrestling with a lot more and more lately. But it's that, that concept of being satisfied by God and to be satisfied by Christ the true bread of life and to have that if I could just have nothing else but Jesus Christ I am satisfied and to me that's that's the ultimate application and the goal coming out of this um, is I really want to be edging closer to a, a posture of really having that satisfaction in Jesus and almost a holy dissatisfaction with anything but Christ. Um, so those are a few things that I think we can draw application out of, even though we're not a Jewish disciple in that moment in time. I think finally, we want to equip uh, our listeners with a few more broad strokes in terms of um, how to make that first step of reading the Bible for yourself. Because it's all well and good. You might go, okay, well, Ken and Marcus, like, obviously you've done a bit of homework before you recorded this podcast. Uh, you probably just Googled this conversation and copied and pasted it. Uh, but what about for me? You know, I, like, I'm, I'm just someone with uh, a, a version in my hand. I don't know where to start. I mean, there are, there's topical reading plans. There are books of the Bibles. And then there are, like, a billion different translations. There's so many options. So sure, I want to read the Bible well for myself. I want to be able to learn to read and be satisfied. But I just don't know what the first step is. So how can I make sure I can begin to do this the right way? Now, I know the right way might sound like a bit of a joke because sometimes we think, well, isn't just any reading of the Bible good? But honestly, you have to as we've kind of mentioned, you have to find the objective truth before you can turn it to the subjective reality of how do I put this out for myself. Uh, in terms of tips I reckon you can use or things you should do when you approach reading the Bible for yourself, I've got, I'll, I'll try to follow Charlie's acronym ways in saying triple D. Uh, I don't know what will help you remember 
three Ds, maybe thinking well, bra cup sizes, double D, that's a triple D, can think of credit ratings, a triple A announced, triple D. Uh, but three Ds, direction, dedication, uh, and for the law people out there, due diligence. You have to read with direction. You can't just randomly, I'll read Matthew today, and then I'll jump here and there, unless you're really planning to read all those books and have the context for everything. I suspect you might not have the time for that. Uh, you need to read with an aim in mind and a size and a focus because it's pretty tough to try to analyze the entire book of Matthew at once. So you can pick a portion like we've done today and then go, well, I want to focus on this passage, but I'll be mindful there's a context to it. And that's okay. The second one is dedication. And that is really you need time. Marcus and I haven't just read this on the spot and decided let's just try to think of what we want <laughs> it takes time you have to be disciplined you have to set time apart and if you really are using U version, you need airplane mode because you're reading and a notification comes up and suddenly you've spent 20 minutes talking to someone and you've kind of lost that time you've really put in to engage with the bible and you need to not be in a rush because if you're trying to say well okay i've, I've just going to read this to fill some time you're really not going to get much out of it and so you have to read it in such a way that well this is that time is dedicated for me to understand this passage and understand it as best as i can otherwise there's definitely something you're going to be cutting out maybe you skimp on the context and you miss it all you skimp on observing and then you just actually end up on an internal monologue with mm -hmm. yourself and lastly that's when it leads to due diligence don't jump to conclusions. You, you can't jump and start with application and then think about context later. No, you have to go context, think of the details, repeatedly read as Marcus and I like to do. Don't put yourself straight into that picture. Don't assume. Ask the right questions. Don't go, do I truly know what it is? For example, Matthew had mentioned some places, Tyre, Sidon. Don't go, okay, cool, Tyre, Tyre, Sidon. <laughs> But actually they have meaning because that's saying, well, who's in, the, who's in that country? Ask the right questions. Uh, and lastly, don't just jump straight to a commentary because then you're just studying a commentary and not studying the Bible. Uh, I, I'm not saying don't read them, but I think it's great to go through it and have a see as what God says to you before you hear what God has said to, say, Marcus or uh, Matthew Henry. Uh, so that's the three Ds, direction, dedication, due diligence i think we're just about time to sign off marcus uh any last words my only suggestion would be start small don't don't you know i know we like to say reach for the stars but when it comes to this um, start off with something uh, a lot more bite-sized and over time you can just build it into something that you can study in in larger portions uh, i think it's really important that we understand that there will be a difference between reading for devotion and a reading for a study and i think a devotional reading will focus on breadth so you might have um, a mixture of different um, types of books that you might be reading for through your devotion throughout the week um, but when you're taking the time to study you're probably going to want to focus on a smaller portion but you're reading for depth and not so much for breadth and my final word of advice is don't, don't be afraid if you're feeling like it's clunky when it comes to application. Um, be satisfied with not knowing. 
but don't walk away without knowing what it says about God. Um, and I think ultimately we have to view the Bible as a book about God and is not about me. So I don't always need to find a personal meaning about myself, but I will always need to find what it says about God. And to know God is to love him. That's the ultimate application. But yes, you're right, Ken. I think that's all uh, that we've got for today. If there's any other questions that you have as you pick up your Bible for yourself, please come and chat with Ken and myself. Uh, And more broader for the podcast, if there's any feedback, any other topics that you'd like us to cover going forward, uh, please feel free to reach out as well. But until next time, hope you enjoy this episode of the Young Adults Podcast by Grace Church.